Hello and welcome to the Slavic Connection. I'm your host for this episode, Cullen, along with Samantha. We spoke today with Dr. Yasmin Mayanovich, who's a political scientist focusing on democratization and civil society in the Western Balkans. For those of you who have spent any time in the region, you know, we are a extremely cynical people. A stereotypical example, right, is that, you know, as soon as you get in a cab anywhere in Sarajevo, Belgrade or, or Podgorica or whatever, you know, the cabbie is going to explain the world to you within the next seven minutes. Samantha, tell us a little bit more about Dr. Mayanovic. Dr. Mayanovic has his own podcast called Sarajevo Calling, which he hosts with Alexander Brezer. And he also has a book from 2018 called Hunger and Fury, The Crisis of Democracy in the Balkans. Today, we talked about regional politics in the Balkans, democratic backsliding, and elite maneuvering in an age of COVID. Yeah, it was a fascinating walk through the state of democratization and elastic authoritarianism. I, I learned a lot, and I think you all will too. You're listening to The Slavic Connection, brought to you by the Center for Russian, East European, and Eurasian Studies at the University of Texas at Austin. Dr. Mianovich, would you like to introduce yourself? Sure. So I'm a political scientist by training. I work primarily on the area of Southeastern Europe, specifically the Western Balkans. I am very much concentrated and interested in questions about both democratization and democratic backsliding, which is to say authoritarian and liberal regimes that have emerged and reconstituted themselves in that region over the last few decades. I'm also very interested specifically in the role of social movements in civil society as they relate to both processes of democratic consolidation and also democratic backsliding. So this is a good way to start. And why don't we define what the Western Balkans is and what it is not? (laughs) Because we can't just say the Balkans because sometimes that just means post-Yugoslavia. Yeah, so the Western Balkans is a is a is an odd little term that emerged in the early 2000s, and it was, as you note, um, it was initially intended as a way of not saying the former Yugoslavia anymore. Um, so the line used to be that the Western Balkans is the former Yugoslavia minus Slovenia plus Albania, plus referring to the fact that Albania, of course, was never part of Yugoslavia. Today, you also have the term the Western Balkan Six, which refers specifically to the six states in the region that are not part of the European Union, but were part of the former Yugoslavia, again, plus Albania. So in practice, we're talking about Bosnia-Herzegovina, Montenegro, Serbia, Kosovo, North Macedonia, uh, and Albania. It's it's a little bit of a curious term. I'm not sure that I necessarily like it, but it's sort of become the norm. And so, you know, we use it as, as shorthand. And for our listeners who maybe have not fully been integrated into the deep sea of Balkan politics, could you maybe describe maybe democracy as it stands or political participation as it stands and maybe how your view differs or your characterization of it from traditional Mm. transition narratives of the region. Right. I guess I'll start with that second question first because it's a little bit easier. I think my argument, at least the one that I sort of make in my book, Hunger and Fury, is that the process of democratization has really only just begun. And that's, that's, I guess, like I said, that's sort of the controversial part, because obviously you've had a long internationally led process of um, democratic institution building and state building that's been going on effectively, uh, you know, depending on where you're looking. If you're looking at Kosovo since 99, 2000, if you're looking at a place like Bosnia since 1995, 1996, you know, obviously the, the international community in various forms and shapes and sizes has been on the ground for, for the better part of almost getting on three decades now. Um, but my argument is that 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 process is distinct from a genuine process of democratic consolidation, by which I mean one that is internal and effectively indigenous to the societies themselves. So one that is separate from, you know, things that the U.S. might have been doing doing or the EU was doing, uh, et cetera, et cetera. Um, 
broadly speaking, however, the state of democracy in the region, you know, in, in 2020 is not great. And in many cases getting worse, um, you know, you have a country, for instance, like Serbia, which is basically on the brink of an outright kind of uh, autocratic dictatorship. Um, I mean, you know, we can we can debate to what extent it's kind of an illiberal regime where there's still kind of a pretense of, of uh, elections going on, um, but in practice, it very much operates as a as an autocratic regime under the president Alexander Vucic. Um, then you have uh, you know a, a country, for instance, like Montenegro, where we've just had these very controversial elections that have taken place, and we appear to be witnessing the first democratic change of government in Montenegro. Since the dissolution of Yugoslavia, some would even argue, you know, now we're getting a little bit into the weeds, but some would even argue that this is the first democratic change of government in Montenegro since 1945. And then, you know, you have a place like Bosnia, which again has a very specific constitutional regime, extremely fragmented, very significant discrepancies between the quality of democracy and these various constitutive units that comprise the modern Bosnian state. All in all, it's not great, notwithstanding the fact that you know, over the last decade, or in fact, over the last half decade or so, you have seen, uh, to my mind, very positive democratic breakthroughs, in particular in a place like North Macedonia. But unfortunately, as a whole, the region is not doing great as far as democracy is concerned. And so you're, you look at several case studies of these kind of really powerful fleeting moments of democratic participation from a grassroots level, Mm -hmm. like in Macedonia Mm -hmm. um, or North Macedonia. And I'm wondering what you think about kind of more recent developments, specifically in Serbia, I'd say, like the protests from, you know, one of five million or kind of the ongoing Nadavimo Beograd, or we're we're not going to let, don't let Belgrade down. Yeah. So I think this is, this is in some ways one of the kind of stickiest points that that I think people have trouble with when those of us who make arguments, for instance, about essentially bottom-up democratic processes. I think there's a tendency, and this is not just when people are thinking about the Western Balkans, I think it's when people think about democracy in general, and, and obviously we're all very lucky to be living through this wonderful era of democratic backsliding all over the world, essentially. There's a tendency to want to think about politics and democracy in very neat and essentially finite terms, which is to say to imagine a kind of end point, like you will reach a point in social development and then like democracy will have happened. Then everything thereafter is is details. You know, it's it's a kind of a version, a kind of internalized version of sort of the end of history thesis that that Francis Fukuyama laid out famously, right? I think many of us have actually, especially in the political West, have, have internalized this narrative, even without actually having read Fukuyama. And obviously those who have read him know that his, I think, conception of that, that, that argument, his thesis there was actually considerably more critical and problematic than, than I think it's been portrayed after the fact. So that's that's just to say that it's it is the case that we saw very very I think promising very hopeful necessary developments happen in a place like North Macedonia that ultimately resulted in the fall of the then uh, Nikola Gruevski regime uh, that allowed North Macedonia to reconstitute its kind of political direction to finally clinch NATO membership to really restart its European accession processes. Obviously, the situation since then has become more, you know, it's become more contested. But ultimately, I think in many ways that that is a good thing because the, the country has, in a sense, moved on from this moment of kind of romantic revolutionary fervor, which was necessary, and begun to drift more towards a kind of stable, consolidated, multi-party democratic regime. In places like Serbia, you know, we're, we're still obviously not at that point. And we're also very much, on the other hand, at the point in Serbia where these kind of civil society mobilizations are themselves extremely disparate, extremely fluid, and they do not at all have yet a comprehensive and cohesive view of how to deal with and treat the Vucic regime. Because the reality is, while you do have a segment of the protest movements in Serbia, which are, I would characterize this as essentially kind of 
reformists. They are democratically inclined. You know, they they do want to create a, a genuine functional democratic regime in Serbia. They have, I think, a healthy critical view towards the last three decades or so of Serbian politics and in particular Serbian foreign policy vis-a-vis sort of the region as a whole. On the other hand, you have very vocal very significant, very influential street-based mobilizations, which are, to my mind, fundamentally reactionary. They are part of a kind of right populist wave that has, I think, really gained greater salience since since uh, since I wrote the book. I mean, there was there was aspects of it, obviously, on the ground already then, but they've become much more influential, in particular in places like Serbia, but also Montenegro. It's it's I think that kind of essentially right populist reactionary mobilization that was really critical to the loss of the long-standing or rather long-governing DPS party in Montenegro. So, you know, street-based politics, civil society mobilizations are finicky things. They're they're not always necessarily quote-unquote progressive, however we want to define that term, because ultimately, and, and, and this is something that I argue in the book, you know, ultimately they come from a place of desperation. People turn to street-based politics when other avenues of political and democratic change no longer seem viable. And when you get to that point, it's tricky, it's hairy. Things can get really, really weird really, really quickly, and they certainly have. On the desperation point that you Mm -hmm. mentioned there, I was wondering how things in 2020, this wonderful year that we're all living through, how that mm-hmm. might have changed the way that this democratization process has been developing. It's hard to say, and and I don't know that I can give you any particularly informed view uh, uh, because I don't know how the situation is going to continue to develop. I mean, it's certainly the case that we have also seen in the region certain kinds of, again, reactionary mobilizations in line with things that we have seen in, in parts of Europe, other parts of Europe and the United States, you know, anti-mask protests, anti-vaxxers and, and, and all of this hokum, right? So, so those tendencies obviously also exist in the region. I, I do think it's fair to say that there has been some problematic developments on top of that in the sense that we've seen a number of elections take place during this pandemic here in the region that ultimately, to my mind, were, were ill-advised, including in a place like Croatia, which obviously is an EU member state. You know, we've seen these extremely problematic elections in Serbia, above all, but we've also seen uh, uh, recent, not just elections, but thereafter major, and leading into it and thereafter as well, major civil society mobilizations in Montenegro. I, I think in many ways, the pandemic has just kind of added a, a layer of, of stress of fear, of anxiety, to what was already very much a a kind of boiling cauldron. I don't know that the pandemic in and of itself, at this very moment, you know, that we can sort of point to any particularly striking results. I suspect we're going to have to wait a little while longer and that the biggest effect of the pandemic, of course, will be economic. And that that if, in fact, it turns out that there's going to be a, a kind of still further degree of economic degradation in the region, in a region that was already struggling very much economically, that, you know, in 2021, 2022, you're, you're going to see that boil over potentially in very dangerous ways. But again, I think it's, it's still very early and, and I, don't, I don't want to make any grand claims, as it were, because, uh, you know, I'm, I'm, I'm also living through this moment along with all of us. Of course. Yeah, it's it's not not to say that there is an obvious trajectory of any of these things now, but the economic element of it makes me wonder about an article that you wrote in February about the West declining relevance and how that kind of leaves a leadership vacuum for politics in the region. And I was wondering if you have any thoughts on the pandemic and economic stuff related to that. I think I can start off with one kind of good point. I mean, I think one of the good things that happened in the European context vis-a-vis the region was that the EU really did get its act together relatively quickly. I mean, by EU standards, uh, this is a this is a massive, massive ship. It's a massive, massive beast, and decision making within the EU is extremely diffuse. So one always has to be a little bit patient and generous <laughs> with the EU. And I say that as somebody, I think, who's often characterized and seen by some of my European colleagues as as being anti-EU or sort of extremely critical of the European Union. And it is the case that I'm extremely critical of the European Union. I am not in any sense of the term anti-EU. 
I'm very pro-EU. I'm just oftentimes extremely frustrated with what the EU looks and behaves like in practice, which to my mind is a very different point. So the the EU did put together a, a kind of very generous and very comprehensive economic package for the region, and I think that was that was very good and that was very uh, uh, necessary. And and my understanding is there will be further economic relief coming down the pipeline. But broadly speaking and structurally speaking, the EU is probably at the nadir, at the bottom of its influence in the region since essentially the end of the Yugoslav Wars. I think there's been a profound and long-standing period of declining both relevance and what to my mind I think is especially alarming, declining trust on the part of local populaces in the efficacy and essentially truthfulness of EU commitments and promises to the region. I think the most striking example of this, of course, was with North Macedonia and Albania over the last two years. And in particular, North Macedonia, after the country made these massive, massive changes, massive, massive democratic breakthroughs, including the resolution of the longstanding, and and I always say ridiculous name dispute, and let me be very clear, not ridiculous because of North Macedonia, ridiculous because of Greece. I, I am extremely partisan on that point. This was essentially a hostage situation that went on for 27 years on account of Greek intransigence. But there it is. You know, Macedonia, North Macedonia did something unbelievable that, that you know, very few countries in, in, in modern political history have ever been, have A, ever done and B, ever been asked to do, actually. Off the top of my head, I can't think of another example. You know, it had to change its name. And that was obviously an extremely emotional and, and divisive issue within North Macedonian society itself. And after the, the country did this on the back of, again, this kind of massive revolutionary mobilization, a very traumatic period in the country's history to begin with. After all of that had happened, you know, when, when, it, when it finally came time for the European Union to sort of hold up its end of the bargain, which was to allow the country to begin its European accession process, you had France and the Netherlands and a handful of other countries essentially pull the rug out from underneath both the Albanians and the Macedonians and argue that suddenly uh, uh, the whole accession process had to be repackaged. Now, I am actually somebody who, again, believes that the accession process should have been repackaged and should have been reimagined years ago. But for goodness sake, the time to do that was not once it was time, you know, at the very moment that it was time to sort of live up to the promise, promises that had been made to the Macedonians and the Albanians. So to my mind, that moment, and that was also not the first time that that had happened, something very similar had happened only months earlier, but that moment for me came to encapsulate a tremendous amount of built-up frustration and resentment that had come to, come to exist from the kind of local perspective with the European Union. And those tensions have only been exacerbated further as we are kind of entering into this era of, you know, geopolitical competition as, as countries like Russia, China, but also Turkey and even the Gulf states have begun to take on more and more importance in, in regional affairs. The EU is, in the 2000s, it used to argue, EU officials used to argue that it was, quote unquote, the only game in town. That is decidedly no longer the case. You know, those of us who were warning that that was a foolish and arrogant position to take to begin with have been vindicated in the worst possible way. The U.S. is obviously in the midst of a profound existential generational political crisis, one that may or may not be alleviated in the short term in November, but in the long term seems unlikely to be alleviated. So the region is, in that sense, very, very much adrift. And I mean, again, to be very, very blunt, I don't see any further European enlargement taking place this decade. It's going to be the first decade, I suspect, since the beginning of the European process in the region that you won't have at least one state joining. To my mind, there's going to be no progress until 2030 in that sense. And it's very much an open question how local societies will respond to that fact, especially, again, in light of these geopolitical tensions, in light of the kind of declining relevance and influence of both the US and the EU, and also the ascendancy of these kind of new international challengers who are offering all kinds of goodie bags for local elites and local leaders, but with very, very little, if anything, in terms of democratic institutions, democratic processes, accountability, transparency, et cetera, et cetera. Thank you. 
On the topic of EU integration and kind of how the EU has been really content to leave the borders of the EU where they are, how, how much of a role do you think the increasing immigration of migrants trying to get into the EU has in the sense that it seems like the EU is quite content to let Serbia and Bosnia stand as the border between letting them in? Yeah, I mean, it's a, it's a very, uh, you know, it's a very duplicitous policy that 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 the EU has taken vis-a-vis the migrant issue. And again, let's 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 put this in the proper frame. Um, the the kinds of numbers that were of people of human beings that were arriving within the EU at the height of the migration crisis, circa 2015, was significant. But it was ultimately a PR crisis, and I think it's important that we acknowledge that because from a kind of basic social economic standpoint, the EU could have taken that entire population and you know, multiplied it by 10 and would have been able to completely absorb that population without any meaningful economic challenge to the union, right? The, those funds, those, those resources existed and they exist today. Problem was a political one, a PR one, that for Europeans within the EU who you know, already kind of had nativist sentiments, who had anti-immigration sentiments, we're uh, already in a period in which far-right and xenophobic parties were gaining ascendancy. This was, you know, this, this, this was the perfect moment for them. You know, these were very striking visuals that you would see hundreds, sometimes thousands of people arriving, you know, in train stations, crossing borders, et cetera, et cetera. You know, this was a huge, huge boon for the European far-right. And mainstream political parties and governments in Europe responded essentially by calculating that the biggest threat in all of this wasn't actually the migrants. It was these nativist, xenophobic, anti-migrant, anti-immigration parties. And so that they had to make policies on the basis of not giving additional fodder to these political parties. This was obviously most clearly the case in places like the UK, France, the Netherlands, where you know you, you were dealing with very credible far-right political movements. Germany initially did really a, a very, very good job of responding to the crisis. Chancellor Angela Merkel showed you know, great humanity in her response, but even over time that, that dissipated as concerns about the German far-right also began to inform Berlin's policymaking. That then meant that the, the Brussels and, and the member states began turning towards the Western Balkans, but also Turkey, and, and essentially reimagining their role within the security architecture and the immigration enforcement architecture of, of the European Union. And these countries essentially began to be recast as border guards, in which case their poor democratic standards were suddenly actually an advantage. And again, this is where we go back to, to the issue of what was then still Macedonia. And in particular, you had a moment where Austria in particular began turning to the Grevsky, the, the then Grevsky regime in, 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 in Macedonia. Sebastian Kurz, uh, the current chancellor, made a very, very aggressive and very, very aggressive uh, ploy to uh, Nikola Gurevsky, came out as a big defender and a big supporter of Mr. Gurevsky. In fact, later went on to stump for his party in the Macedonian elections. Itself a kind of incredible uh, visual and incredible diplomatic, uh, again, ploy, essentially began supporting the Gurevsky regime specifically because the Gurevsky regime was taking this extremely hardline and militant approach to enforcing and maintaining the Macedonian border, which is to say the border between the Western Balkans, the European Union, and along the, the, the migrant refugee route. So suddenly, the Western Balkans gained new salience and gained new significance for the EU outside of its fold, but on its border as these proverbial border guards. That situation has, to an extent, sort of become a little bit more alleviated. The numbers of, of people coming in have obviously dropped significantly. You've also had you know, the imposition of very, very hardline border regimes in places like Hungary uh, in Southeastern Europe. But the result has been that you've obviously had a huge pileup of people in places like Bosnia, which, for instance, during the migrant crisis, the height of the migrant crisis was not on, was not on the route itself. People were going around Bosnia. But since other avenues and transportation and, and migration routes have become closed off, more and more people have started arriving in Bosnia. So the numbers are, are hard to um, always pin down, but we're talking about somewhere in the neighborhood of 10,000 people at least in Bosnia right now presently in very poor conditions in a country that does not have the resources really to put these people up in a humane place. You also are dealing with a situation where political decision-making in Bosnia is extremely fragmented. 
So for instance, the RS entity, the, the Republic of Srpska entity, categorically refuses to allow any migrants to enter its territory. So effectively, all of the migrants are situated on the territory of the Federation entity, and in many cases, disproportionately localized in some of these northwestern border zones around the city of Bihaj, for instance, with Croatia. It's a very, very ugly situation. And, and obviously, we've had very serious concerns over the last few months with the kind of overall conditions within some of these camps, both the ones that have been created by the UNHCR, but also that have just kind of popped up. So it's, you know, when you're looking at the migrant and refugee issue vis-a-vis the Western Balkans and the relationship with the European Union, it is it's a pretty depressing topic because, again, the EU has not shown itself to live up to its promise as ostensibly the largest liberal democratic bloc in the world. Do you see a possibility that these migrant populations might be able to be integrated into Bosnian society? I know that's a tricky issue. Right. This is something actually that, like, I made this point, I can't even remember now, several years ago. And I said, look, you know, from a purely kind of logical standpoint, when you're looking at these societies in the Western Balkans that have been themselves dealing with massive emigration problems, where, you know, we're already very, very small population countries. I mean, Bosnia, according to its last census, was, you know, about three and a half million people. Realistically, that figure is probably closer to three than three and a half million. And it might even have dropped underneath that figure since then. It's it's very hard to get completely reliable figures. You know, we're losing tens of thousands of people every year. This is also the case in Serbia. It's actually also the case in places like Croatia, which is an EU member state. You would think that a massive influx of population from places like the Middle East, that could actually be a net economic boon for these societies. And that if you were willing to create some kind of public policy infrastructure to integrate these folks, that would ultimately be a good thing for for all of these societies. The problem, obviously, as you say, is not much in the way of a lived history, or I should say lived memory of these societies actually being destinations for immigration. There, There is unfortunately growing hostility to the refugee and migrant communities in, um, in places like Bosnia and Serbia. And also, I think structurally speaking, these are already themselves extremely poor and economically weak societies. There's not much in the way of a functional welfare state. And so there's very much a sense, I think, among local people that, you know, if you have some young man from Syria who's suddenly going to be given a residence permit and he's going to be given resources to start a new life in whatever Velka Kladysha, that's essentially taking bread out of the mouths of them and their children. And that's obviously a very, very hard sentiment to respond to in light of the poor socioeconomic standards in these countries to begin with. Um, This is where uh, greater support from the European Union would be helpful, but, you know, it would take a very committed and sophisticated kind of engagement that unfortunately we've we've not seen. Now, you, you did mention that we have more actors like China and Russia really investing And that's not a new phenomenon in the Balkans or the Western Balkans. You know, we have China giving Serbia actual aid that they couldn't get from the U.S., for example. You know, we we have a poster in the middle of Belgrade saying, thank you, brother Xi Jinping. Do you see this as kind of a resurrection of a very particularly Yugoslav balancing between the East and the West, accepting aid and investment from Russia and Serbia and Gulf states and then you know, turning around and really playing up, signing agreements with Kosovo in Washington. Yeah, I mean, I think that's a factor. And for those of you who have spent any time in the region, you know, in places like Serbia, Bosnia, Macedonia, etc., you know that one of the sort of wonderful cultural traits that we have is that we are a extremely cynical people. It's a deeply oral culture, and it's a deeply cynical culture. So, you know, the, the kind of stereotypical example, right, is that, you know, as soon as you get in a cab anywhere in Sarajevo, Belgrade, or, or, or Podgorica, or whatever, you know, the cabbie is going to explain the world to you within the next seven minutes, regardless of whether you're a PhD or, you know, some stay-at-home mom or what have you. Like, it, it doesn't matter who you are, where you're from, he's going to tell you things about the, the internal dynamics of Syrian politics, because he, he listens to the radio all day. So I think there is a lot of cynicism that has popped up in, in the region over the last few years. I mean. Again, as I've written about, you know, things like the the elections in the United States in 2016 and everything that's happened in the country since then, Brexit, the, the kind of crisis within the European Union when you're thinking about countries like Hungary, Poland, democratic backsliding. 
that obviously has affected popular perceptions of the kind of vitality and uh, robustness of uh, liberal democracy and free market capitalism and, and, and all of the other things that you sort of might associate with the political West. That obviously has had a huge effect and it has definitely been played up by countries like China, Russia, Turkey, et cetera, who, who have been sort of trying to workshop a different model of international relations and international community in, in the region. That's, that's definitely the case. On the other hand, I think it's important not to run away with that argument because the reality is, at least as of this moment, all of the kinds of negative trends that we are seeing in places like the UK, France, Germany, the United States, et cetera, et cetera, in terms of overall democratic legitimacy and vitality, you know, I don't want to say they pale in comparison to the problems that we have in the Western Balkans, because I think the situation in many ways is actually quite alarming. But the reality is from a kind of baseline socioeconomic standpoint, you would be hard pressed to find anybody, for instance, who had been thinking about immigration, who, you know, will have looked at what's happened to the political West since 2016 and been like, you know, maybe, maybe I should actually stay in Olovo. Maybe I should stay in Novi Sad after all, because I think there's, there's greater economic and social prospects here in the next five to 10 years. That's, that's just not the case. I mean, I would say that's not the case, unfortunately, <laughs> right? It would be nice if people in the region actually felt like, that in the next few decades, things were going to improve and that they should try to stick it out and, and make a go of it for themselves and their kids. But that's not happening. In a sense, you know, you're still very much dealing with a situation where I think a lot of people are essentially arguing to themselves and their peers that, you know, I'll take Germany and the US on their worst day rather than, you know, what's happening here right now on their best day. Again, I think that's, it's a bit simplistic. It's a, it's a bit, you know, one shouldn't run away with the argument as it were, but, but I think it's, it is difficult to, to overstate the degree of disillusionment that has had taken place in particular over the last decade in, in the region, you know, sort of concerning the possibility and probability of significant socioeconomic change. I think, I think people are very much of the belief that at the very least they're of the belief that, that they're not willing to wait it out anymore. They, they had been in years prior, but that ship has definitively sailed. I think that raises a question to me that I had while reading your book recently is how the dynamic between elites and these domestic popular uprisings plays out going forward when you're looking to increase democratization when there's, I don't want to say it's the same dynamic, but there is a similar problem between the elites and the governments and what popular mobilized protests in the street want in the West, in the countries where they were pointing to and saying, this is what we want to go toward. And yet it's not working there. So why would we want that? Yeah, I mean, I think definitely in Belgrade, under Alexander Vucic, you, you definitely have had the revival of a kind of a version of the non-alignment doctrine. Yes. Tito and the Yugoslav regime, but Tito in particular, were doubtlessly the most successful and most influential regional leader in, you know, modern political history. Uh, he left a huge footprint on the minds and imaginations of both ordinary people and political elites. In so much as we are still dealing with the liberal and authoritarian tendencies in the region that we are, you know, uh, the point has been made by various scholars that you know, the irony is that what you had happen in the 1990s was the dissolution and the fragmentation of the Yugoslav state, but not the Yugoslav governing apparatus, which is to say that effectively what happened is that the Yugoslav regime divided itself into six or seven pieces, but the nature of its government and governance and, and administration never quite changes fundamentally as, as it did perhaps in other Eastern European countries after 1989. Yeah, you know, Vucic is trying to balance. I mean, he is trying to get goodies from both the Chinese and the Russians and the Americans and the Europeans. And he's also trying to very much prop himself up specifically as, well, as, as he sometimes referred to in the local regime press in Serbia, you know, the, the quote unquote factor of stability in the Western Balkans. He does imagine himself as a as a great statesman. He does imagine his version of Serbia as a, as a regional power, the regional power, in fact. But this is a model of international engagement that that all of these elites use. I mean, they're extremely adept at 
manipulating and playing off outside political actors against themselves. I mean, as fragmented as Bosnia is, you see it very much in Bosnia take place and, and it's been taking place for decades. You've definitely seen it in Montenegro. You know, when you're thinking about a guy like Milo Djukanovic, who has had such a storied political career from essentially being a, you know, right-hand man of Slobodan Milosevic to then eventually transforming himself into this kind of major pro-Western figure, pro-NATO, pro-EU, pro-LGBT rights, et cetera, et cetera. There's a kind of flexibility and fluidity to the ideological commitments of Balkan elites, which is very specific. And I and I obviously um, go into this in, in some detail in the book, you know, what I refer to as this notion of elastic authoritarianism, how, how local elites and local regimes have been able to reinvent themselves in ideological and political fashion without making major, major changes to the nature of their governance, as, as I was saying earlier. So, yeah, I mean, there's there's obviously a balancing act going on, although it has to be said, I think when when you are thinking in particular, you know, since we're talking specifically about a guy like Alexander Vucic, I think it's important not to to run away with the argument once again and 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 ever really believe this that this gentleman that this leader has any true blue commitments to sort of what we would call Western liberal democracy, rule of law, free market capitalism, et cetera, et cetera. Vucic rhetorically has made a lot of commitments to the EU, to the political West, but fundamentally his his aims and his ambitions do not see Serbia becoming a functional democracy. I think he does genuinely desire Serbia to become a member of the EU. He does genuinely desire for Serbia to become politically relevant and significant to the political West. But he wants it to be politically significant to the political West in the way that somebody like Viktor Orban has made Hungary significant to the West, which is to say that he has influence over their decision making without actually adopting, you know, I don't like the term Western values, but civil society, civil liberties, free and fair elections, again, rule of law, etc., etc. As we say in the region, he wants the kind of Swedish buffet model. He wants to pick and choose what he wants for Serbia without fundamentally ever losing power. That's the crux of the argument. But I, again, I think in their heart of hearts, their sympathies are closer to people like Putin and Erdogan and, and, and Xi Jinping than they are with Western liberal democracies. So let's, on the topic of continuing to use this kind of balancing act borrowed from non-aligned strategies, although its intentions have radically changed in the figure of Vucic, let's talk about Yugo nostalgia and not necessarily the cultural ego nostalgia that is quite trendy these days, but also quite widespread. I mean, I think it's it's absolutely true to say that there are many young people and older people who, who do feel ego nostalgia. But you're somewhat critical of the possibility of something utopic, like this utopic political idea in ego nostalgia to crystallize into mass action or a mass political mm-hmm. goal that would unite societies. Do you think that this kind of socialist past has been could be ever drawn on productively, especially in light of the fact that for many people in protest, they, they really do care about, let's say, bread and roses more than they care about the system that gives them that? I think that's a really interesting question. I think what I would say is that Yugoslavia at this point in the 21st century is ultimately a kind of meme. The the folks who had deep lived experiences with the Yugoslav regime are slowly passing away and going away just out of biological necessity. People like myself, the very, very last generation that had any kind of lived memory of Yugoslavia are at the very least in our 30s now. And we have, I think on the whole, a much more critical disposition towards Yugoslavia than, say, my parents' generation. For myself and my peers, for instance, my generational cohort, the defining experience of Yugoslavia for us, obviously, was its dissolution in, 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 in the most catastrophic way possible. And in particular, in places like Bosnia, you know, in light of the Bosnian genocide and things like that. But it didn't go well for anyone. You know, what survives are these kind of fragmented cultural artifacts, the music, the aesthetic, a kind of broad, vague sense that there used to be a country that that had some kind of international stature and significance, and there was a degree of comparative prosperity. 
that our parents got to live through the kind of halcyon period of baby boomer economics that, that you know, even people in like the United States and, and Europe lived through as well. And that, you know, obviously our generation is dealing with things like the pandemic and the 2008 financial crisis and all the rest of it. And then obviously for you guys who are still younger, you know, in some ways the situation is even worse for you because, you know, you've, you've just grown up in a period of sustained crisis from essentially 9-11 onwards. So in light of all of that, obviously, it's, it's understandable why there is a certain kind of continued attractiveness. And, and again, I say kind of cultural cachet about the romanticism that many people have about Yugoslavia. But from a practical standpoint, from a political standpoint, I don't know that Yugoslavia as a concept has very much salience anymore. Now, I do think you're right that there is a lot of appetite and a lot of desire for a kind of turn towards a politics of social decency. At the very least, the creation and establishment of a, of a kind of functional social welfare regime across the region. And that is very much a shared desire. And I think there is very much a common sense of economic frustration disillusionment and, you know, very similar, for instance, labor politics across the region, similar forms of social mobilization, etc., etc. Unfortunately, the nature and the severity of the, the Yugoslav dissolution is such that I think it's very difficult and it's proven itself very difficult to translate those kinds of shared socioeconomic conditions, even if you want to use the kind of term class dynamics across the region, into something more sustainable because there is such a degree of political polarization and dare I even say political resentment that lingers on in the region that it's that's very, very difficult. And then obviously that that is only further exacerbated by the fact that, you know, when you're thinking unfortunately about a place like Serbia, the reality is that mainstream political opinion in Serbia vis-a-vis -vis the Yugoslav dissolution is fundamentally conspiratorial. I mean, there, there's, there's just no way to, to put that in other terms. Like the mainstream opinion about the nature of the Yugoslav dissolution in Serbia, in mainstream Serbian society, is historical revisionism. And so when you have not had the kind of, to use the term, truth and reconciliation that would be necessary to, again, have a kind of constructive conversation about the future of cohabitation and political organizing, it's, it's very difficult for that project to gain any salience in any legs. And, you know, let me be clear, are there historical revisionist tendencies in, in other former Yugoslav territories? Absolutely, absolutely. You know, we see it in, in various ways in places like Montenegro, Bosnia, Croatia, et cetera, et cetera. But the reality of the situation is that the, the Milosevic regime and its successors, and, and Alexander Vucic in particular, is very much a successor and aspires to be a successor of Slobodan Milosevic. They had an authority role. They were the, the, the driver of the Yugoslav dissolution. Unfortunately, Serbian political society has largely failed to come to grips with that fact and what it means not only for Serbia internally as a, a political society and an, a, and an aspirational democratic society, question mark, but also its relationship with the rest of the region. So as long as that persists and, and all of the other sort of appending dynamics that persist, it's very difficult to see a kind of, <laughs> shall we say, 21st century Yugoslavism re-emerging in any meaningful sense of the term. Yeah, so even today, maybe an example of kind of an, a regional solidarity that is a little more dubious than what we would like. We just have today, you know, Milorad Dodik, who, former Republika Srpska leader, member of the Bosnian Tripartite Presidency, is, is visiting Croatia right now. Unofficially, very unofficially, Bosnian other members of the presidency have made it very clear that it is a quote-unquote private visit. Right. It means nothing for Bosnia or the Bosnian presidency, what do you make of this kind of inter-regional maneuvering by Dodik and particularly Plinkovic, perhaps? Well, again, I mean, this is, you know, I think I would situate this in, in the frame of kind of the declining relevance of, of the EU and the US. I mean, this is in light of the fact that the kind of broader liberal democratic project, the Euro Atlantic project for the region appears to have dissolved. And that is very much the consensus among political elites, whether it's true or not in the region. You know, their opinion is that that ship has sailed for all intents and purposes. You know, they are now maneuvering 
themselves in various ways and, and towards various ends to realize certain kinds of political ambitions that they have that were simply kind of taboo within the context of, of the Euro-Atlantic process when it existed. You know, Milena Dodik is an unreformed Serb ultranationalist. He openly aspires to the creation of something like a greater Serbia. Alexander Vucic is, is in many ways very much the same character, although he's still a little bit more of a, you know, he's making greater pretenses of, of a kind of diplomatic niceties, right? He's, he's a little bit more careful in that sense. But from everything that we've been able to gather, that he very much has the same aspirations as, as Milorad Dodik. Notwithstanding the fact that the two of them have a little bit of a tense relationship for, for various reasons that we don't need to go into at this time. Croatia, uh, unfortunately, continues to have also very reactionary tendencies as far as its foreign policy is concerned, and in particular vis-a-vis the, the Bosnian-Croat community, which Croatia characterizes as being a, a diaspora, which is inaccurate because these are indigenous communities to Bosnia. They did not move to Bosnia from Croatia, as the term diaspora would suggest. <laughs> but uh, be that as it may, Croatia continues to very routinely and very aggressively interfere in, in domestic Bosnian politics, much as Serbia does. At times, you know, you, you have had a certain kind of revival of a kind of 90s era accommodation between Zagreb and Belgrade when, when it comes to uh, Bosnia in particular, kind of bizarre, almost partition-like politics vis-a-vis Bosnia. These are all various examples. And, and you know, we could kind of go down through the region, you know, when we talk about sort of the partition talks about Kosovo, when you're talking about the the recent events in Montenegro with this kind of clericalist, nationalist slash reform government that appears to be emerging in Podgorica. These are all different aspects of a kind of dormant politics that has been percolating in the region for much of the last decade or so, but has been building pressure because there has been the growing sense and the growing realization that the, the kind of the Euro-Atlantic project has ceased to be. And so now the question, of course, is what comes next? For a lot of political elites in the region, their calculation is that, well, look, if the European Union is gone and the U.S. is gone, why don't we try to revitalize certain political and strategic ambitions that we once had, in particular in the 1990s, and see if we can't realize them? Ideally, in peaceful fashion. You know, Milorad Dodik is always keen to say that he's trying to do all of this in peaceful fashion. But of course, from a practical standpoint, kinds of things that he talks about are impossible to realize without violence and war. What it, it logically means that if he's continuing down this trajectory, he is uh, he's making preparations for, for some kind of violence. And then when you obviously think about the fact that, you know, Serbia has been aggressively rearming itself, you know, by factors of 10. We saw, I believe it was last year, between, or pardon me, between 2018 and 2019, Serbia was, as I recall, fifth in the world for a year-to-year increase in defense spending. You know, it was it was in the three figures. Croatia has been doing very similar things. Uh, other regional countries have also been taking very um, significant and, 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 you know, one might say alarming steps to reconstate their security and defense capacities. Bosnia, obviously, again, fragmented, so it's it's challenged in that sense. But even within Bosnia, you have these kind of local, ex- increasingly militarized police forces popping up. You actually have a surprisingly effective intelligence apparatus in Bosnia. Um, but again, it's fragmented, but even the centralized intelligence apparatus in Sarajevo is surprisingly effective. It's, uh, you know, it's just, there's... The game's afoot is, I think, the the conclusion by many local elites. And there's not a lot of appetite in Western capitals to deal with that reality for, you know, all of the familiar reasons. But it, it is to remind ourselves that, you know, local populaces and local political elites have agency of their own and they're taking steps to imagine their own future. I think for the most part, I think, unfortunately, in very dangerous and alarming ways. But but, you know, there it is. Let's end on a positive note. It's not easy to do, <laughs> but is is there some, let's say, kind of nascent political movement or kind of cultural touch point across countries in the region that you're really optimistic about or you're seeing really grow that bodes well for the region in the midst of this increase in regional maneuvering? I, I think we are still very much in the midst of a kind of generational transformation. And I think that's that's good. Although I, I, you know, I don't take the view that you know young people aren't sort of inherently progressive. That's that's not the point I'm trying to make. But I think ultimately it is good that we are 
that we are in the midst of a generational transformation, that we are very, very slowly and painfully seeing more people your age, my age even, you know, folks in their 20s and 30s becoming more politically active and, and beginning to make their voices heard in, in a in more significant fashion, in a more sustained fashion. And also importantly, I think that from my experience, folks from the region who, who grew up in the diaspora, even kids who maybe were born in the diaspora in places like the US and, and Canada and, and you know Western Europe, they're they're sort of in some ways returning politically and philosophically to the region. And they're interested and, and they want to think about it and they want to talk about it and they want to re-examine some of these questions and some of these problems. And they are, um, you know, not entombed and ensconced in the same kinds of biases and prejudices that our parents' generation is and was. Um, and, you know, for, for some of these younger kids, they might even say, you know, that, that some of the things that I've said, hey, you know, maybe that's a little bit too biased and too prejudiced and, and, I, and I don't like some of the ways that you talk about you know, whatever Bosnia, Serbia, Croatia, et cetera. And that's great. I, I think that's really healthy. I think that's really positive. I, th- I think the role of, of young people is always in, in, in a meaningful fashion to kind of discard the, the, the baggage of, of their elders. And I think that's really healthy and necessary. And I think it's especially really healthy and necessary that, 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 that kids from the diaspora are becoming more activated and, and, and more engaged, you know, and, in, and in, even in my own experience, although I was born in Bosnia, and, and I think obviously in comparison to a lot of younger diaspora kids, I'm, I'm, I'm much more embedded in, in, in that society than they are, you know, speak the language as my mother tongue and all this kind of stuff. They, in a weird way, have grown up oftentimes with a kind of pan-Balkan mentality, lest I say Yugoslav mentality, because, you know, they've grown up in places like whatever, America, Canada, you know, they, they, they've grown up in places like Chicago, which are these wonderful, uh, multicultural, diverse, they're Thai and Sudanese and Argentinian and, and all this amazing stuff. And so they just have a, I think, a much more expansive view of the world. Now, again, there are reactionary tendencies, very reactionary tendencies in the diaspora. The diaspora itself is fragmented. All that is also the case. But I, but it is to say that I think there is a, there is a lot of untapped potential in, in, in young people in general. And I do sort of, in that sense, categorically refuse to give up on young people. Democracy never ends. Democratic politics never ends. It is continuous and it is continual. And that is frustrating and that is really, really hard. And that is exhausting, but it is far superior to the alternative. Any kind of politics that promises you an endpoint, any kind of politics that promises you neat packages, is things that we should be extremely wary of. In my mind, it's usually uh, you know something that ends in disaster. So there it is. That's that's my hopeful note. Things end in disaster. <laughs> well, thank you so much, Dr. Mujanovic, for joining us on the Summit Connection. I really a joy to talk to you today. Thank you very much for having me. The views expressed on this episode do not necessarily reflect those of the show or the University of Texas. Please visit SlavXRadio.com for more information. Thank you for listening. The Slavic Connection is produced by the Center for Russian, East European, and Eurasian Studies.